have been in the book of Revelation for the past several weeks, and if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would take them and turn to Revelation chapter 12 as we continue on in our study. The title of this message today is A Dragon, A Woman, and Her Seed. Sounds like a movie, doesn't it? You know, if, if you were looking on Netflix trying to find something to watch, depending on where your interest level lies, you might watch this movie. And in fact, as we go through this passage of Scripture, some of you will have the imagination to, to kind of picture scenes, and we'll show some pictures as well that may help us. But as I have done for the past several weeks, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read the entire chapter so that we can capture the, the context of it all, and then I will refer to different passages as we go through the rest of the message. So beginning with Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, the Scripture says this, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with sun and with the mood under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on his head. He, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman which was about to give birth so that he may devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, the woman who had, was given two wings of a great eagle, eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would take care, where she was taken care of for a time and times and a half time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the servant spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river, and the dragon had spewed out of his mouth, and the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God, his commandments, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Father... We read such unbelievable words in your scripture, and we recognize that in order for us to encapsulate the truth of this, we really need the help of your Holy Spirit. Father, as your proclaimer today that you use me, I ask that you would cleanse me and fill me with your spirit and your power and a mind that is connected to you so that I can articulate well what you desire to be articulated. And would you prepare the hearts of your people to receive your word so that when we leave this place, we will have been fed and encouraged by it. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Once again, I want to acknowledge the work of Dr. George Wood and Dr. Jim Bradford in providing so much of the study materials that I have been able to use during this study. Now, I know that today is Valentine's Day. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were watching TV together, and we watched a TV program called Hoarders. Have any of you ever seen that? Shortly after watching that, we were motivated to go to our basement and to our storage area down there and begin to pull out all of those boxes and things that had accumulated so much dust and begin to clean because we recognized that we could go either way on that. 
Yesterday, as we were doing some cleaning in one of the tubs, I pulled out a box and I opened it, and it was filled with our high school and college yearbooks. Now, how many of you know that when you're unpacking, you get interrupted? Uh, you start remembering what you put away in the first place, and so I came across our 1979-80 college yearbooks and discovered that Cindy had written me a lengthy three pages in my yearbook, and I had written her a lengthy one page in hers. So we just stopped where we were, and we began to read that. Now, I, I need to tell you something. At this stage of our relationship, we had been going out for about four months. I was deeply smitten. She was still questioning. I had some work to do. But we just stopped, and as we read that, 41 years later, we, we began to look at the hand of God in our lives. And I, I told her last night, I said, that was the greatest Valentine card that we could give to each other what it was like to relive those early moments of our relationship where we were hopeful, we weren't sure what was gonna happen, but we were hopeful that the Lord might lead us into a future. And so I trust that today some of you who have a Valentine near you might just begin to think about those things. But on this Valentine's Day, I just want to declare for you for the Word of God, Merry Christmas, because that's what the Scripture is about today. Merry Christmas. Last week in chapter 11, it took us to the end of history, to the coming of Christ, to the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And now as we get to chapter 12, we have another timeout. Have you noticed that when we get to the end of something, there's always these little timeouts, and, and then we get to review some things again? And so in chapter 12 of Revelation, all the way through chapter 15 of Revelation, what happens is there's going to be seven sub-scenes or seven subplots that are going to be brought up that will be unfolded in these chapters. And this first one here in chapter 12 really causes us to go from the end of human civilization at, at chapter 11 all the way back to Christmas Eve from heaven's perspective in chapter 12. Now, here's what I need to remind you again, that as we have gone through this book, if you are a chronological person or you're trying to calendarize Revelation, you're going to have a deep problem with this because it, it kind of circles back around from time to time. And so it's not what happens next that's important. It's what John sees next that is important. And so we keep seeing this battle that is being fought and that the ultimate conclusion of this battle is that the dragon loses, the dragon is slain, and in fact, in Revelation now, it's the third time that we begin to circle back to this, this eternal battle that is taking place, and we get to see the third time how the story ends, but from a different perspective. And so at the end of Revelation 6, we saw the breaking of the sixth and seventh seal, and there we saw the, the end of the world. Again, we saw it at the end of chapter 11. And now in Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, is a third way of looking at the way that God will bring an end to things. But in each one of these scenarios, there's new details. There's different things for us to learn. And there's fresh perspectives that we can begin to apply to our lives today from it. If there's one thing that Revelation ought to tell us, it's this. God is wanting you to be convinced of the reality of Satan's defeat. He wants to remind you again and again and again, regardless of what life may look like or what you are going through, Satan loses, he wins, and those that are on his team win with him. And so out of Revelation, rather than looking at this out of fear, we look at this with great hope. There's three characters in the story today that we're gonna look at. There's a woman, there's a dragon, and there's the woman's seed. If you're taking notes, you can jot down the first point is the woman that we want to talk about. In this verse that we were talking about, the way she is dressed is described for us. She is clothed in the sun, the moon is under her feet, on her head is a royal crown of 12 stars, and she is heavily pregnant. In fact, so pregnant that she is on the verge of giving birth. Her time is due. In fact, as we have done several times during this series, there is an artist's rendition of what this might look like that I would like you to take a look about. Now, this is the best we can do with being clothed in the sun, but I'm certain that those of you who have very creative minds can begin to look at this and see this because what we are looking at here in Scripture that's being described for us is a picture of Israel in general and a picture of Mary, the mother of Jesus in particular. And this is just before Mary gives birth to Jesus, or as you're looking at her, it might symbolize the entire nation of Israel just before the Messiah is born. 
In fact, in Revelation, we're going to be introduced to another woman a little bit later on in, in Revelation 17, and it also, the Scripture describes the way she is dressed. She is known as the prostitute of Babylon, and the way that she is dressed is very seductive, indicating that the way the Scripture describes the dress of women was very important in the correlation of what we are to understand about them. Interesting in the phraseology of these early verses in chapter 12, when it talks about the way John describes her of being dressed and standing on the moon and the sun around her and the stars, it reminds us of Joseph's dreams from way back in the 37th chapter of Genesis when he was describing to his brothers that in his dreams he had seen them all bow down to him. And we know that ultimately that dream that he had was to indicate to them that there was coming a time when they would bow down to him and they would need his help for survival. And we saw that play out later on in his life. As we take this symbolism and apply it to this passage and where we are, the Spirit inspires John with this figure of the sun and the moon and the stars to represent Israel, not only a physical Israel, but a spiritual Israel of which we are included and we recognize from this that at some point in our life, we needed the help of a Messiah. We needed the help of a Savior. Now, we know that the world despises God. The world despises the people of God. Don't want to shock you with that, but you're not real popular of those that are outside Christ. And so there is within the imagery that God gives to us here... A way for him to say to us on Valentine's Day at this Christmas story that I love you because we are described as a radiant bride. Now, I will admit to you, I struggle with this as a man. I have a hard time picturing myself being a radiant bride before God. However, what I draw from that is the fact that I am treasured, I am cherished, that he loves me with a love that gives, he provides for me. And so we have this beautiful image that is given to us as to where we fit. If you were to look at this image of this woman about to give birth and picture her as Israel, you would say that, frankly, in the time in which Jesus was born, there was not a lot of the people of Israel that were looking for a Messiah. There were a few, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, Anna and Simeon. But when we look at it from the perspective of life today, we recognize the great gift of Jesus at Christmas that was given to us. But in this picture of the woman with her feet on the moon, standing dressed in the sun, stars around her head, there also then very quickly in verse 3 and 4, we are led to another frightening image. It's the image of the dragon. In fact, he is identified as a great red dragon that is in opposition to the woman. And the scripture describes him as this dragon that has a number of heads. In fact, there's an image that I would like to show you of an artist's rendition of this dragon in Revelation chapter 12. The figure of speech is given for the impression that this is a huge monster who is being represented as the enemy of God, the enemy of God's people, the enemy of Israel, the enemy of Mary, and he stands as a color of red which always symbolizes violence. So we recognize the nature of this beast is a violent nature. The Bible describes him as having seven heads and seven crowns and ten horns, seven being uh, the seven heads expressing that there is intelligence to this being. The figure of ten horns like the horns of a bull, which are a symbol of strength. And the imagery that's involved with its seven heads means to us that though we may be over, able to overcome one of the attacks of this dragon, we may not be able to overcome all of them. There are different ways in which the enemy attacks each of us. There are temptations which may bother you that wouldn't bother me at all, but there are temptations that would bother me that you may have overcome. And so this indicates that the enemy has multiple ways of leading people into temptation, trying to defeat them, trying to overcome them. One of the writers that I was reading of indicated that he thought it meant that there would never be a generation that would not find its way of being attacked, that... Our generation may be over to come, but the next generation likewise would have to see a multi-pronged attack on them. The fact that this beast 
has crowns indicates that there is some level of reigning involved. In other words, there were groups of people that would call this beast, this dragon, their leader. We'll find out a little bit later on in Revelation 12 as it begins to interpret this itself that this is a picture of Satan for us. In fact, sometimes in the Bible, dragons were also talked about as serpents, and, and that harkens us back to the imagery of Genesis chapter 3, the dragon, the great serpent who is Satan. And so we have this image of a pregnant woman. We have this image of a dragon that is lurking, that is stalking her, that is waiting for her to be in the vulnerable position of giving birth when she cannot defend herself so that he can attack and instantly try to devour the child, devour the hope, devour the Messiah before he has the ability to do anything. Welcome to Christmas Eve from heaven's perspective. Isn't that great? Now... We have seen this image early in chapter 12. Let me show you the image of Christmas Eve from our perspective. This is what we view. We see the baby born in a manger and we feel bad that he has to suffer because he's not in a hotel room and we look at all of this and, and everything seems so peaceful. How many of you know that what we see in this world and what happens in heaven is different things? I believe that that's what Revelation 12 is trying to explain to us. There is a warfare going on just beyond the scene that we oftentimes are unaware of. And so we look at this scene that is described for us, this Christmas card that's described for us in, in Luke and Matthew. And we look at that and go, how did the dragon get here anyway? Interesting, the scriptures do not explicitly give us details of Satan's fall, but there are intimations throughout scripture, one of them found in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, when it says, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. On the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself the most high. The words of the dragon himself. Do you hear the spirit of pride that is represented? Let me repeat what he says about himself. Because this is what he declares today in this world. I will ascend to heaven, the dragon said. I will raise my throne. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly and the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will remove God and I will place myself. I will make myself like the most high. Here's what you need to know out of that scripture. Satan has been trying to imitate God ever since he fell from heaven. All he can do is imitate. He cannot create. He takes what is created and he just destroys. But he tries to make himself as an imitation. And in this spirit of pride that is identified in the New Testament as the spirit of Satan or, or the problem with Satan, it also becomes a problem that you see in those who follow him. They are full of pride. It is his nature at work within them. So in this dramatic scenario of heavens and Satan's initial fall, that's the teaching of Revelation chapters 3 and 4, is that there was an initial fall. He, he left his place in heaven and he became something different. And it's important for us to look at this chapter and interpret it correctly because there needs to be a separation from his initial fall to what happens later on in the chapter when he is thrown down in judgment. So Satan has been cast down. And he now knows that his only hope of ever achieving anything that he wanted to achieve was for him to stop the birth of Jesus or for him to devour the Messiah before he could become the Messiah. He knows that if he fails to get Jesus, then he's lost the whole game. And so he poised himself in this position, and it tells us in verses 4 and 5, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour the child the moment it was born. Is there any more vulnerable time 
for both a mother giving birth and the, the helplessness of a child than there is in that very moment. And isn't that just like Satan? I am going to be poised to attack you at your most vulnerable moments in life because that's his nature. And it says, and she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. So we're going to move from the Christmas card to the Christmas scene of Revelation. And I want you to take a look at this because this is what was really happening. Satan, this dragon, waiting for Mary to give birth. And it says in verse 5 that Christ successfully eludes him when it says, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Now, for those of you that have your paper Bibles, I want you to underline those words. And for those of you that may have your electronic Bible, there, I want you to try to highlight. Some of you are really good at that. I'm not sure how to do all of that. But I want you to underline those words because those 12 words change everything. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. There are going to be moments in your life that you're going to have to remember the fact that Satan missed. In fact, interesting enough, this strange scripture was brilliant in its summary that John begins to tell us because John was inspired to write it just this way and it encapsulates the whole purpose and the ministry of Jesus as simply this. He was born and he was caught up to the throne and Satan never got his opportunity. Now here's what's fascinating. Nothing was said about the life of Jesus. Nothing was said about his death. Nothing was said about his resurrection. Just simply his birth and ascension are condensed into these 12 words, all of it together. He was born, Satan missed, and how he then missed is then told to us through the rest of the New Testament and the Gospels. Interesting enough, Jesus is born, Satan missed, and the woman is sent to the earth. And we look at this woman's life. It tells us that she was sent back, the woman who represents Israel, who now spiritually represents the church. And it says that she was going to go into a wilderness. And the wilderness is a symbolic word because it simply means a place where God will lead his people where only he can provide. Have any of you ever lived in a wilderness experience and discovered that only God can provide for you in those places? I'm going to be using that theme as a devotion next Sunday night for our, our uh, business meetings devotion because of what God has taught us through this last year of living in a wilderness and how he has provided for us in all of that. But the, the word wilderness is a symbolic place. The desert is a symbolic place where God sends her for protection and, and provides for her. And we find now in verses 7 through 12, given a little more information about the dragon and what he does, and there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough. By the way, let me just stop here for a moment because I want you to see something. We often see the church in a defensive setting, as if it's the enemy that is always attacking the church. I want you to notice in Scripture it says, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. In other words, it is the church that's on the march. It's God that's on the march. It's the enemy that's on his heels. It's the enemy that has to fight back, trying to protect himself from the power and might of God and his army. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. I love that. Can you imagine the fun that Michael's going to have? As he grabs that dragon by the seven throats and throws him at the earth. Hurls him. Who seems more powerful and who seems more helpless in the middle of this view? The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. 
Therefore, rejoice. Let me just repeat that. Therefore, rejoice. Therefore, church, rejoice. Therefore, redeemed, rejoice. Therefore, discouraged, rejoice. You heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you and he's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. So John describes the defeat of the dragon in heaven being thrown down to the earth and, and the dragon's expulsion from heaven. And there are several different views on this from those that study scripture, whether this took place when Jesus died on the cross in the resurrection morning or whether this is yet a future event. I tend to believe that scripture indicates this is an event that is coming yet in the future that I believe ushers in the seven years of tribulation. And I'll tell you why as I get through this. I believe it fits scripturally better that this is a future event. The reason being is because in the present realm in which we live today, Satan, we know, has access to heavenly places. We know currently that he's there because at the end of the age as it begins, the seven years countdown, it's going to be the result of an occasion of God taking Satan and throwing him out ordering the archangel Michael to go and throw the dragon down to the earth that will further limit his role and further limit his influence in heaven. And there's a subtle thing going on in scripture that, that I just, I think it's magnificent because it's such a huge insult to the dragon and to Satan. We think that he is so powerful and he's way more powerful than us. We, we readily admit that. But in this view that Chapter 12 gives to us as to where the real power lies. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, and he puts it well. He said, we as people tend to think of things in terms of opposites. Light is opposite of dark. The opposite of heat is cold. The opposite of God is Satan. And he says, not so at all. Not so at all. There is no opposite to God. There is no one but God. He cannot have an opposite because there is nobody like him. The opposite of Satan, according to Revelation 12, is Michael the archangel, is the opposite. Therefore, Satan's power is limited and he's not even the most powerful angel. Because Michael, who typically represents throughout Scripture as the guardian angel of the people of Israel, or today in the New Testament would be the guardian angel of the church because we've been grafted in with them as Gentiles, I know that my guardian angel is bigger than Satan. There is no opposite to God. And so Satan is humiliated again, the fact he did not have the power to attain the throne of God because he's not even his opposite. You say, okay, then... How then do we reconcile what Satan is doing today with where we live? Well, we look at Scripture a little bit, and it gives us a more perspective. Here's what Satan is presently doing. We know from the book of Job that he had access to the presence of God because he went there and he asked permission. I love that part. I love the fact that Satan can't do anything without asking permission, and he thinks he's going to take his throne. I don't like the fact that Jesus gave him permission. I'm just going to be really honest with that one. But he had to ask because he wanted to lay his finger on Job. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 identifies him as he is the ruler of the kingdom of the air in which we live. Ephesians 6.12 says, you and I today, this is currently, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And by the way, these spiritual hosts have a captain, his, a dragon. His name is Satan. And so the fact that today we recognize that our accuser is in heaven or in the heavens indicates to us that he still has access there. And here's how he works. We know that the term devil is in the Greek word meaning deceiver or slanderer. Satan in Hebrew means adversary or folks. And so here's how he is constantly at work today. He is working to trip you up, wants to constantly make you feel as if you cannot live successfully in your faith. And so when he trips you up, he is working as his purpose is as a devil. And then after he trips us up, because none of us are perfect, 
None of us can live a life of complete holiness without having to ask God to forgive us day by day. But when he does, he then slanders you and accuses us, which is his role as adversary. And because he has access to heaven, he is constantly seeking to lodge charges against you and charges against me to our Savior, which makes him currently the accuser of the brethren. And this is by default who the world will serve if they do not choose Jesus. I think Paul, meditating upon this in Romans 8, says this, and this is to the encouragement of the church. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? And then he answers, will Jesus Christ? No. And if Jesus won't bring a charge, then who's left to bring one? Who's left? So imagine the scene, because... This battle currently is being fought in two courtrooms, and one of them is the courtroom of your mind and your heart. Satan knows your weaknesses. He knows your vulnerabilities. He knows when you look in the mirror in the morning and you feel as if you're not going to be able to make it. You feel as if I'm a hypocrite. I can't do this. I'm not going to be able to survive. And he knows that, and so he whispers into your heart in the courtroom of your own conscience, and he says things like this. You are unlovable. You are unusable. You are unblessable. You are unchangeable, you are unforgivable, you are a wretch, you are a pretender, and you have no business pursuing the heart of God, because out of everybody in the world, you are the most wretched. And while he's fighting that battle in our heart and our mind, he also is then fighting in the courtroom of heaven where he is smearing our name and our being before God constantly, day and night. And the Bible tells us not one charge sticks for those who are under the blood of Jesus Christ. Not one charge sticks. In fact, we are told in verse 11 that we are presently, while we are living both prophetically and literally in this, we presently are defeating him. We are conquering him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Now, did you notice that God gives you a piece of your own victory. We recognize that I have no standing before God whatsoever if it was not for Jesus Christ dying for me. When I stand before him and I am asked, what right do you have to be here? I will throw myself and say, it is only by the blood of the lamb and his salvation that I can stand here before you. But he adds to that, that we overcome him today by the word of our testimony. Some of you don't think your testimony has any power. Some of you need to preach to yourself. Some of you need to recognize that there are others in this world that will be influenced by what God has done for you. There are some out there who think they're hopeless and helpless and have no chance until they hear the word of your testimony. And then they grow encouraged and can find Jesus. And so we see in all of this, it tells us they overcame, past tense. They were victorious, past tense, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So be strong in your testimony. Satan is thrown down to the earth, and he's angry. What a shocker. In fact, in verse 12, it tells us that there's a woe pronounced. It says, therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has gone down to you, and he is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Now, I need to tell you that there is the possibility here that there's an exchange that takes place. I will refer to this again later on when I preach about why I believe that we will be raptured previous to the seven-year tribulation. But I believe that it is not out of the realm of biblical possibility that when Michael throws Satan to the earth that the church is also taking its place and being raptured at that time. That that would be the, begin, the beginning of that. And the term fury and wrath, it's, it's used quite a bit of times here in the book of Revelation, but it's used here in two different ways. There's the wrath of Satan who basically is acting as if he's got nothing to lose and so he is going berserk on the earth just going wild. There's also the anger and the wrath of God, which is a righteous judgment of anger and wrath that he pours out as he is acting legally as a judge would over one who is guilty of the worst possible things that could be guilty of. And so we see Satan being thrown to the earth, 
thrashing around in anger. God exercises his judgment. He's humiliated as he loses his place to even accuse the brethren any longer in heaven. He's now on earth going wild. Now, there is a term that many of us know. It's called he's running around like a chicken with its head cut off. Have any of you ever heard that? Indicating that the greatest activity in a chicken's existence might be right after its head is cut off. That's what we are given to look at here is that as Satan is thrown on the earth, he literally goes into spasms as a decapitated dragon wanting to destroy everything that is around. And this is him. It is not an indicator that evil is gaining strength or is about to take over. On the contrary, it's evidence that the dragon has lost all power in heaven has no influence there, and the only realm left to do damage is among the realm of earth. But we who have studied the Word of God and have a biblical insight know that it is nothing but the final spasms of a defeated dragon, and he cannot win. The third person that's mentioned in the Scripture is the woman and her seed, the woman's seed. It said, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times and a half time, out of the serpent's reach. For from the mouth of the serpent spewed like water a river to overtake the woman, sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman. By opening its mouth and swallowing the river and the dragon that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Guess who that is? That's us. So in the middle of our worst days, in the middle of being on jobs around people that hate our Savior and hate your testimony, when they spew absolute words at you that are hate-filled and you're called all kind of names, maybe even to the point of death in the future, we do not know. What you need to understand is it does not mean that the dragon has won. It means that he has lost. Because having failed to snatch Jesus, the dragon now in his hatred in the day in which we live, says, fine, if I can't destroy him, I will destroy those he loves. And I will put a hurt on your life, and I will attack you and persecute you so that I can cause hurt to the one who I missed. So I'm after you. And in the middle of that, we're going, great. That's just what I wanted to hear this morning in church, that I now am in the center target. But let me tell you something. The scripture says that we're given wings of an eagle to fly into the wilderness where God prepares and protects us. But I need you to understand, even in Isaiah 43, 2, it talks about when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. So as the, as the serpent is spewing out rivers of water, hoping to pick you up and row you away and wash you away and destroy you, the word of God comes to us and said, for every attack, I've got a promise. For everything he said he can do, I'm coming alongside of you. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to sustain you. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And the church is upheld and strengthened to all that. But it is very clear that we need to understand that there is no place within this that it is promised that our lives will be spared because of our testimony of the Lord. He spares his church, but our lives on earth might not be spared. In fact, we've talked about the fact that we will go through trouble. Many of you may be going through it right now. There are places in our world that are going through horrible trouble because of their testimony in Lord Jesus Christ. And here's where I want to tie this back to the first century church that he wrote to. John was talking to seven churches in, who were being overwhelmed in their persecution by the Romans. And there is a story that is told of 100 years later after John had recorded what we see in Revelation, the Romans were still in power and they were still killing Christians. And there was the famous martyrdom of a young lady who was in her early 20s 
And she had just given birth to an infant, even while she was in prison waiting to go into the Colosseum. Her name was Perpetua. You can write that down, and I would encourage you to look up her story, because I don't have a time to tell all of it. It was an incredible story in the diary that she wrote. After her decision to become a follower of Christ in the middle of a persecuted time in Rome, she was constantly threatened and was constantly imprisoned. At one point in time, in a court setting, they brought before her her father, who was not a believer in Jesus Christ. And the Romans said to her, Perpetua, if you will renounce your faith in Jesus Christ, we will not beat your father up. But if you do not, you will stand here and watch as we beat him. And in that moment, she chose her faith in Christ over the pain of her own father. And she watched as he was mercilessly beaten in front of her because she would not let hold, let go of her witness. She ends up being sentenced to die in the arena. She was tied to a pole in the middle of the arena, and they let bulls come in. The story is that one of them with a horn came and gored her in the side, ripped the clothes that she was wearing, knocked her down on the ground. She had a hair tie in her hair that fell out on the ground. Because the bull did not kill her, they took the bulls away, and in the intervening time between what they were going to do next, she asked if she could be untied for just a moment so that she could put her hair tie back in and take what was left of the burlap she was wearing so that she could cover herself a little bit. She says, because I do not want anybody here to think that I am dying in mourning, but I am celebrating what God is doing in my life. The soldier then stepped up to her and swung a sword, hitting her in the thigh all the way to the bone, but it did not kill her. And as she lay on the ground with a wound from a bull and a sword that had hit her, she reaches out to the soldier in front of her and she takes the end of his sword and she puts it right to her heart. And they said, those that were watching that, they looked at her and they said, all we could see in her eye, there was no fear, there was no anger, there was nothing but the glow of the Holy Spirit upon her. As she declared, I am unworthy to suffer as my Savior has suffered, but I am willing to give my life for the cause of Jesus Christ because I know the reward that is waiting for me on the other side. This young girl had written a diary, and in her diary, before her execution, she had a vision the night before. She said, I saw a ladder made of tremendous height, made of bronze, reaching all the way to the heavens. But it was so narrow that only one person could climb on it at a time. And to the sides of the ladder were attached all kind of metal weapons. There were swords and spears and hooks and daggers and spikes all over the lower aspect of this ladder so that if anybody tried to climb up it carelessly or without paying attention, they literally would be mangled in their flesh and their flesh would hang and adhere to the weapons that were there. And at the foot of this ladder in her vision, she said, lay a dragon of enormous size who indicated that he would attack anyone who came near to that ladder. She said, I felt in my spirit the Lord tell me that he will not harm me. So she said, I looked at that dragon and I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, and at my words, the dragon went from in front of the ladder to cowering down and hiding behind the ladder with only its head sticking out right underneath the first rung. She said, then I stepped over in victory, stepping on its head, used it to launch myself as I climbed the ladder because I was victorious because Jesus has already died for me.